Hi, everyone. Welcome to the second edition of Lifetime Value. I'm your host, Rithik. Every Monday, this podcast will shed some light on the fintech industry in Mexico or LATAM. Uh, and every month, I will be bringing on a mystery guest that still explores the themes of business, but has nothing to do with fintech. Today, I'm extremely excited to have Paul Kopinger, the CEO of Unipagos. Paul has been in the payments industry for more than 30 years. I would say that he, in my opinion, is, is the most experienced payments guy I've met, not only in Mexico, but ever in my life. For about six to seven years, he's been running Unipagos in Mexico. And we worked together when I was at Didi to launch Mexico's first ever debit card for a ride healing company. In a past life, Paul was a CEO of Apriva, which held 95% market share in North America. So without further ado, I'd love to have Paul on the podcast. Thank you again, Paul, for joining me today. Hey, Reddit. Glad to be here. So I've given a quick summary of your CV, but I don't think I've done any justice given you're one of the most experienced, but also the most interesting person I've met in Mexico's fintech. So perhaps maybe you can spend a couple of minutes uh, giving our listeners uh, a bit more in-depth into your experience and uh, what brings you to, to Mexico, for example. Well, I got, first of all, let me say, if I'm the most interesting person you've met in the fintech industry, then you don't get out very much. You need to, <laughs> <laughs> you, you need to stretch your uh, legs a little bit. But uh, I built a very successful company in the United States. That gave me an opportunity to do a lot of speaking. Um, mm-hmm. And my specialty is security. So a lot of times they would ask me to talk about security. And I would frequently get up and talk about just how broken the payment industry was. Um, I talked, and, and it's obvious to everyone, I said, you know, how many people have uh, had your identity compromised? Raise your hands. And, you know, most of the room raises their hands. How many people have had at least one card uh, cloned? Almost everybody raises their hand. Mm-hmm. How many people have, you, have uh, done a chargeback? Everybody raises their mm-hmm. hand. And, uh, and so I said, so see, the, the, the payment industry is, is broken. It doesn't work. It's, it's got security problems. And then I would talk about how those problems should have been solved or how, how they shouldn't have occurred in the first place. And after doing this for several years, I had an opportunity to create a new company. And I realized that for the first time, instead of complaining about the way the payment industry worked, mm-hmm. I had an opportunity to actually do it the right way, you know, Mm -hmm. in other words, shut up and and do something to fix it. And so I was looking for economies that had not completely solidified into a card based economy with, you know, lots of terminals, lots of cards in the market. Mm -hmm. I was, and, and I evaluated several different potential countries. Uh, India was one of them. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Mexico was another, and, and believe it or not, um, Nigeria was another one. Interesting. All of them had good characteristics. They had a wide distribution of cellular phones and, uh, and people actually used them in all of those countries. And there was also a 
most of the country, better than 50%, didn't use cards or, or terminals. So the, there were opportunities there. But ultimately, I picked Mexico because it was close. I was born in Arizona, and, and yeah. I'm very comfortable with Mexican culture. And, and mm-hmm. my father spoke fluent Spanish. So I decided to come to Mexico. And it turned out to be, uh, I think, a really good decision. Very interesting. You know, you, you said your dad was fluent in Spanish, but I personally have never heard you speak more than three words <laughs> Spanish. Yeah, he didn't pass that gift on to me. I've had to learn <laughs> that the a hard generation, way. I'm guessing. <laughs> well, I've been here for seven years, and I'd say for the first five of those years, all I could do is order food and, and give directions to get back home. Um, <laughs> what, one of the things that's about being an entrepreneur Um, one of the unique things about being a founder of a company that Mm -hmm. most people don't understand or appreciate because they've never done it is that you have the ability to pick the people that you want to work with. And that sounds kind of obvious, but if you stop and just think about it, you know, most people, they, they get hired into a company and they hope that they get hired into a team with a good boss and, and a good group of people that they can work with. Well, when you're a founder, you get to handpick every person that's going to be working next to you. And so, of course, I handpicked a bunch of people that spoke English. And that meant that uh, I, for the first few years, I didn't have any real need to speak Spanish. But then mm-hmm. I, uh, I ended up getting a girlfriend that didn't speak any <laughs> English. And, and so now I had a need. So the past there couple of go. years, my Spanish has improved quite a bit. I wanted to perhaps get somebody as experienced as you probably there where the the birth of the payments industry was happening too to give everybody like a quick step-by-step guide as to what the industry is there's a lot of words within within the whole payments industry that seem really confusing and, and there seem to be a lot of people within the value chain but a lot of times people get confused so perhaps you could use the example of what happens when you insert your card in that point of sale machine to the point that you have paid for a particular transaction as a way to explain to our listeners what the payments industry is? Yeah, well, the, in order to fully understand and appreciate the payments industry, you have to understand the history of the payments industry. Yes. You said earlier that I've been in it for a long time and I, I wasn't the first generation of people that were building the payments industry. I was officially the second generation. But what that means is that all of the guys that were the founders, the the first guy who invented a payment terminal, Uh the the first guy who decided to put a chip on a card. um, And before that, it was just Magstripe. Um, I, I knew those people. They were friends of mine. We, you know, we had dinner together. We got drunk together. We were speaking on panels together. And uh, so I had a, I had a lot of access to those people and I learned a lot about the history of of the payments industry. And it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, or, was not an organized and tidy thing. It evolved um, based on necessity. Yeah. And it, it, it grew organically, like, uh, like cities in Europe grow organically. There wasn't a master plan for any of this. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when, uh, what happens now when you insert that card uh, is complicated. Um, yeah. More complicated probably than it needs to be. But there's a, there's a reason for that. And the reason is, is based on how the payments industry evolved. So to answer your question directly, when you insert that card in the terminal, the, there's an a infrastructure of computers, 
servers, switches, routers, and payment brands mm -hmm. and rules that are in, that those payment brands have uh, developed and enforced that get invoked for one purpose. And that purpose is to create a secure communication between the, the cardholder and the cardholders issuing bank, the bank that, that issued that particular card. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the card has a chip. The chip is, is issued and the, the security credentials inside of that chip are controlled by the issuing bank. The terminal exists for the purpose of interfacing electronically with that chip, but it does that in a way that, that allows the, the card to talk directly to the issuing bank. And then in between all of that is this enormous network, enormous network of, mm -hmm. of, of computers that are divided kind of into two groups. Okay. One is computers and networks that are designed to serve the merchants. They okay. call that the, 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 uh, the merchant side or the acquiring side, meaning merchant acquiring. Okay. And then another group of, of computers and networks that are designed to serve the banks that issue the cards. And that group is what we call the issuers or the issuing network. So acquirers and issuers are the two sides. Mm -hmm. And in between those two sides, are the card brands and you know who they are it's visa it's mastercard it's american express uh, a few others depending on the region mm -hmm. and those card brands provide the bridging between the issuing side and the acquiring side mm -hmm. the uh so there's a pack ultimately there's a packet of information a secure packet of information that comes out of the card flows through the acquiring side gets to the card brand that routes it to the appropriate issuing bank on the issuing side and now that secure packet can be um, reliably um, interpreted by the issuing bank. The mm -hmm. issuing bank uh, gives back a response, an authorization or a, a decline. And then that makes its way all the way back to the terminal. And all of that has to happen within about 500 milliseconds. Um, uh, one second is a long time for, wow. for that kind of transaction. And it has to work 99.99% of the time. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of redundancy and things like that. You know, most people don't realize the complexity of what goes on behind the scenes, yeah. but that complexity is a result of the complexity of our payments environment. We have a lot of banks yep. and there, and we have a lot of countries that have a lot of banks and somehow all of those things need to be able to interact with each other. And uh, that creates a very complex tapestry of equipment that all has to mm -hmm. talk to each other. Interesting. I mean, to give a bit of context, like when the first credit cards came about, you had to call the president and he would have to approve the transaction. And there was this machine that you had to do like a, like a jung jung, like back and forth. I don't even know what that machine does, but that's how credit cards worked. And it would take <laughs> a while for you to get the transaction approved. And, and now it's like you just insert it and within less than a second, that whole process finishes. Right. Well, you, you know how this came about originally? Do you know the, the, the very first credit card? It's widely accepted that the very first credit card was in 1955 and it was the Diners Club. Card. Correct. And uh, that was all about people who wanted to go out and, and uh, eat without having to deal with the awkwardness of, of paying in cash. Yeah. And uh, a lot of business executives picked that up as a result. But the, the thing was 
there was no way to verify that the person had the money to pay. It was strictly credit cards. Yeah. Um, and then cards would get lost or they'd get stolen. Mm. It was abused because it, the card didn't even have a mag stripe. It just had your name and an account number on it. And that was it. Wow. And so eventually people said, oh, well, we've got to be able to figure out uh, whether this card is a legitimate card or whether it's possibly a stolen card. So they'd yeah. start publishing every month these books that started out pretty small, just a few pages, with the account numbers of the cards that had been reported as stolen. Wow. And, and eventually those books kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I remember <laughs> in my lifetime going to the grocery store and having the lady at the, at the cash register pull out a book and go flipping through it and trying to find <laughs> the account number for my father's card to see if it was, uh, if it was a stolen card or not. <laughs> and, and, and even then, they still had no ability to check the credit limit or the balance if it was a debit card. It wasn't, until, and it wasn't until the early 80s, I think. I'm, I'm not certain about the date. Um, uh -huh. A company called Hypercom and another one called Verifone. Uh, they had a different name in the early days, but now they're known as Verifone. Those two companies created the first electronic terminals. And the only thing they were supposed to do is just store the data that was in those books so that wow. the, this little device could look it up faster than the lady at the counter could do. <laughs> it did, again, it, it didn't even have a, a network connection. It was just a storage device. <laughs> it, was like, it was like an overgrown calculator. Yeah. But then, then they came up with the idea, okay, well, why don't we put mag stripes on the cards and why don't the terminals accept that? And that led to other problems, people cloning cards, and then they added the chips. And it's mm -hmm. just been Band-Aids on Band-Aids uh, for mm -hmm. many years. But it all began with these paper books. Interesting. Well, backtracking to the process a bit, why is it that there are times when, you know, I make a payment with, let's say my BBVA card, right? Mm -hmm. But then when I get the receipt, it says Scotiabank, for example, what happens there? And, and, ah, yeah. and also why, what is that extra step that perhaps only the Mexican market has that, that the rest of the world doesn't, which involves Prosa and eGlobal, for example? Uh, these, are, these are interesting questions. It took me a while to figure that out too, because yep. Mexico and the United States uh, operate very differently, and there's reasons for that. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, remember I told you that there's uh, two sides, the issuing right. side and the acquiring side. So on the issuing side, your BBVA card is issued by BBVA, and, and so that's the brand on the card. And that's your bank. You're the consumer. That's your consumer bank. Mm -hmm. um, merchants have banks too. And mm -hmm. so the merchant bank in this case, uh, what was the example you said, Banorte? Scotiabank. But yeah, Scotia, Banorte. Scotia. Yeah, let's, sure. let's say that, uh, let's say that it, the, the merchant happens to bank with Scotiabank. Okay. Well, so Scotiabank is going to give him or her a terminal. Um, and that terminal is going to print out receipts with Scotiabank's brand on it. So Got that's it. the issuing, that's the acquiring bank. Got it. And, and on the second part of the, that extra step that, that Mexico's payment industry has of, of Prosa and eGlobal, what is that? What, what, what happens there that perhaps doesn't happen in the U.S., for example? Yeah, the, those um, are called processors. Processors okay. are, are companies that are, exist solely for the purpose of, connecting cards and terminals to the the issuing banks um okay uh, their processors can be specialized you can have some processors that 
only do merchant processing and then you have other processors that only do issuer processing, meaning the card side. Okay. Um, and some processors like ProSendE Global um, will do both sides. And that okay. leads to an interesting situation in Mexico. Um, and this is one of the things that kind of surprised me about Mexico. In the United States, the card brands, Visa and MasterCard predominantly, are very dominant and very influential in the payment industry. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it, you almost feel like when a representative of Visa or MasterCard walks in the room, then everybody has to stand up and salute. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, they get lots of, lots of respect. Uh, anybody who is in Mexico, um, uh, any, any foreigner that's in Mexico, would quickly recognize that there's a lot of times that their cards don't work. And uh, the reason why is because the merchant acquiring bank or processor um, doesn't have uh, an international connection for that particular card. And so Mexico becomes like an island. Yeah. Um, all the Mexican cards and banks interoperate with each other perfectly outside of Mexico um, may or may not work perfectly. And this is especially problematic for e-commerce transactions. Understood. So let's move on to your latest project, Unipagos. Perhaps you can explain uh, what Unipagos does. And uh, for example, the project that we worked on uh, at Didi together, uh, where Unipagos was able to help us uh, launch that debit card. And also, maybe you can dive a bit deeper as to the type of company Unipagos is and the type of competition you're seeing here in Mexico. Mm. Yeah, what I recognized about the Mexican market is that it's, uh, again, very different than the U.S. market. Um, in the U.S. market, 93% of the people approximately um, have cards and bank accounts. And mm -hmm. so everybody's electronic. The predominant way of paying in the United States is with a card. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's my background. That's where I came from. So that's what I was used to. But you come to Mexico and it's the opposite. Most of the transactional, um, uh, of the commercial transactions are done in cash. 80% yep. of the of payments at a grocery store are done in cash. And here in Mexico, what they say is that the, that's an informal transaction. Mm -hmm. It's done in cash. The formal economy is different than the informal economy. In the formal economy, it's like the United States. You have bank accounts, you, mm -hmm. uh, you have cards, credit and debit cards, and you interact with formal merchants to conduct purchases. But then there's this other world, the informal side, where it's the corner tiendas, the corner stores. Mm -hmm. um, it's the, the self-employed worker um, that gets his money in cash every day. And he goes and he buys things using cash. And about 50% of the, of the money that is exchanged in Mexico is in cash. About 70% of the transactions are in cash. Mm -hmm. um, Correct. And so, so these two different worlds are separate. And in a, in a company like, for example, the ride hailing companies, Didi, uh, a lot of the people that they would like to employ are informal. Yet Didi is a company that is very formal. They're Correct. online, they're high tech, you know, 21st century company and uh, very successful at what they do. But how does a formal company exchange value like commissions, like for, with uh, drivers that uh, may or may not have a bank account. Yep. And, and so that's where we come in. Um, what we recognize is that these different segments of the economy, the formal and informal segments, and also um, 
merchants and consumers, that's a segmentation as well. Mm-hmm. Um, they need to be able to operate with each other fluidly. And there's the approach that the government wants to take is let's make everybody formal. Let's make it look like the United States. Yep. But what we learned after many years in Mexico is that the Mexican culture doesn't necessarily want to do it that way. They, they like this informal relationship, yet they also like convenience. They also like saving money. They also like their cell phones a lot. And mm-hmm. so um, they're open to change just in the way they want to change. So what we have decided to do, and this is our, our focus, is to provide the bridges, the technology, the, the legal, the, the um, financial bridges that allow each of these different sectors to be able to interoperate with, other, with each other. We don't ask anybody to move. Stay right where you are. You like it there. There's a reason why you're there. So stay there. But let us create the connections, the highways, the bridges that allow you to interoperate with everybody else in the ecosystem. And so that's our approach. And that's what we do. So that means, in part, we issue cards for formal merchants and formal consumers. Mm-hmm. But in part, also, we allow you to, to exchange value without using cards at all, just using mobile phones. And all of this works together um, seamlessly um, and uh, interoperatively. Interesting. So if I were to sort of summarize, you know, what, what you kind of provide is also like a fintech as a service or, or perhaps even banking as a service. Now, my question would be that why aren't banks doing it? You know, there's, there's a lot of talk of open banking or banks moving towards the digital era and they have the balance sheet and the resources to do it. Why aren't they getting into this particular segment or exploiting this massive opportunity yeah well okay so first of all banks have these annoying things called customers okay that uh that kind of get in the way of making radical changes and and banks have also uh, for good reason traditionally been very conservative Um, okay we used to talk about something called a bank year it's like a dog year but in reverse um (laughs) you know dogs they age seven years for every one human year well banks it takes him seven years what another company would normally take one year to do. <laughs> and that slow movement means that the banks are very reliable and steady and you get a lot of surprises, or at least that's the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the flip side of it is they're using technology that um, is antiquated. A lot of it doesn't interoperate well with the internet. They have to mm-hmm. create new systems to, to be able to interact with the modern internet and the technologies that are connected to it. Um, all of that is bad, but yet they can't turn off the old systems, the, their core banking systems, they can't turn it off. And mm-hmm. so it, it's, an, it's a boat anchor for them. It's very difficult for, for banks to innovate. It's easier for a bank to make a partnership with a fintech yep. to innovate than it is for it to innovate itself. And so that's a strategy that banks are using. Hey, we're here, we've got the licenses, we've got lots of customers. Why don't you, you know, Mr. Fintech, come and, uh, and take advantage of these things um, mm-hmm. and provide us with some modernization in the process. Understood. And speaking of regulation, and, and this will probably need a whole other podcast episode, but yeah, within Mexico, it's an extremely regulated society, especially on the finance and, and technology side. I would love to know your thoughts about it on perhaps another uh, episode. I wanted to move on to this new section that uh, I wanted to try in this episode. Essentially, the guest on the podcast 
uh, asks me a question, irregardless, be it personal, professional, whatever. And I have no idea for preparing for it. I have to answer it. The segment is called Payback Period. And I wanted to start this with, with you, Paul. What is your question? Well, you know, we've been having this really serious conversation about a serious subject, the payments yeah. industry. But uh, uh, I happen to know that you're not that serious of a person. <laughs> I, in fact, I know that you're, you sidelight as a comedian. And uh, <laughs> I know you're pretty passionate about that. So I just want to know why. Why comedy? What is it about <laughs> it that, that, that gets you excited? Why do you do it? That, that is such a good question. I would say like as a kid, I was, always, I was always a class clown. I always wanted to get people to laugh because it made me feel good about myself. Uh, as I grew up, uh, then I decided to try out open mics and I realized that maybe I'm not so bad at it. And then one thing led to another and I would say that Mexican's comedic society has been the mm. most supportive of my career, even though I tend to do comedy in English, my goal is to walk into a room full of people who have no idea what I'm saying and making them laugh, which is itself uh, quite an interesting challenge. But I feel that if I can go beyond the language barrier and make them laugh about the awkward experiences I've had, uh, it just is such an amazing feeling. Great question. <laughs> well, can I ask a follow-on question to that? Sure, um, sure. Just briefly. Sure. Um, I was a, um, my first career was as a classical pianist. Yes. And I learned that, uh, uh, and I, I learned that there were certain skills that I developed as a pianist, performance skills, that yep. later when I was a public speaker and when I were, was in sales situations, I would rely on those intangible performance skills mm -hmm. in a completely unrelated industry, the payments industry. Yeah. Do you find any crossovers in the, in, in your um, work in the payments industry? Do you find yourself using Absolutely. comedic skills? Absolutely. I mean, most of the times I have to speak with people here uh, is either in Spanish or uh, in a completely different culture that I'm used to being. So by being able to read somebody's body language, by being able to put them at ease, it has helped me engage them in conversation a lot longer. Well, yeah, cool. um, Paul, as we wrap up, I just wanted to ask if you have like one last minute for any advice for future founders who want to start their own payments company or, you know, if they're interested in learning more. This is advice for founders of any type in any industry. Mm -hmm. And I received this advice a long time ago from uh, a guy that wasn't that much older than me, but he was very successful. Um, mm -hmm. He was in the real estate industry, actually. And, uh, and he was the guy that was my landlord for the, the <laughs> first payments company I ever made. Mm -hmm. And he said to me one time, you're going to be successful. And at the time I was just getting started, you know, and I didn't feel successful at all. And mm -hmm. I, I looked at him like he just said the biggest lie on the planet. And I said, <laughs> how do you know I'm going to be successful? <laughs> and, and he said, because you're smart, but the reason you're going to be successful is that you never give up. And then he mm -hmm. said these words, you haven't failed if you, if you don't quit. And that, to me, made all the difference. And it, and it turns out to be true. 
you know, it takes a long time to build um, fintech companies. It's not something that, that happens in a year. It, I've done several and each one of them mm-hmm. seems to take seven years to, to get to maturity. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have a lot of times in those seven years, you might be tempted to quit, mm-hmm. but you might think that you failed, but if you yep. don't quit, then nobody's keeping score. The game isn't over. Yep. Yeah, you could still win. And so, and if you're the kind of person like I am that just won't quit no matter what, then that means you're never going to fail. And it turns out that that friend of mine was 100% right. And that's the advice I would give to anybody trying to start any kind of new venture. Just be prepared to never quit. That is great advice. Well, we've come to the end of this episode. Thank you so much again, Paul. And if any of our listeners want to get in touch with Paul, his email is pc at unipagos.com. He's extremely friendly and always up for a chat and has really helped me understand the payments industry and was extremely helpful on and off the, the professional side of things. Thank you so much again, Paul. And we hope to have you on the podcast again sometime. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you.